0: why don't we get started? Um, My name is Craig, as the slide would indicate. I'm from uh, LBL, but more specifically, I'm from NERSC, which is the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center. Basically, we have a bunch of uh, supercomputers that we manage on the floor. And we've got um, on the order of 3,000 or so users uh, who log in from all over the world. And uh, use time on our supercomputer, and my job there is uh, as a member of the security team. And so, what I'm going to talk about is uh, a project that we undertook a little over a year ago, to instrument SSH, which is kind of a nice way of saying we hacked ourselves. Um, we uh, well, I'll, so I'll talk about what I mean by that and and, and why we did it. And uh, most of the talk, I'll be talking about kind of the the design and the implementation and the decisions that we made and why we made them. And uh, I've got a a pretty decent example at the end of of, uh, why it turned out to be a really good idea to do. Um, So for the motivation, you have to step back in time a little bit, maybe not quite this far. And I'm sure I'm dating myself when I say that's a PDP-8. but nevertheless, in the good old days, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, it was really easy if you were running uh, a computer to take your intrusion detection system. In this case, it's Bro, which is what we use at the lab um, and at NERF, and just tap into the network feed that's coming into your center. And everybody used Telnet and our login which are clear text protocols. So you could just monitor all of the login sessions to your uh your systems and and look for bad activity. And this turned out to be really, really useful. In fact, when I was doing this 10 years ago, this was kind of our bread and butter. This is how we found hackers, Um, the classic example of unset hist file. Whenever we saw a user typing that, that's a really good indication that that user is up to no good, that they're trying to cover their tracks. Uh, very, very low false positive rate on, on that. Because nobody ever types that unless they're trying to, to hide something. Um, and it also turned out to be really useful to capture uh, data uh, to use forensically. Once we knew that the that machine had been hacked, um, you want to know how they, or what sort of tools they ran when they got in, if they got root, how did they get root, how can we make sure that they can't get root again. Um, being able to capture those tools, or at least see where they downloaded them from, so that we can download them and, and pick them apart. Um, knowing things like if they if they were editing files once they got onto the system, we want to know what what files they were editing and what happened to them. And there aren't really a lot of other ways of getting that information, unless you can look at the actual login session. So it was extremely Unfortunately, now it's not so useful. Um, This is a newer computer. That's a Cray. Um, It's one of uh, the Crays we have at NERSC. Um, But now we require all of our users to use SSH, as we should, which means that Bro is completely blind to uh, the logins. Uh, The best we have is we still have syslog, and we have process accounting. Uh, anybody who's tried to use process accounting as a security tool, it's severely lacking. Um, you you may you get a lot of information about what commands they ran um, and what kind of resources those commands used, but you don't get something like unset his file because that's just within a shell. So um, we're, we were kind of running blind, and recognizing that SSH. Is necessary. You know, we still require that everybody use SSH who's going to log into our systems with good reason. But we need to be able to get at that that uh, activity again. We need to regain that insight. Um, we also wanted to leverage the experience from the clear text era. So we had all of these signatures and tools for analyzing login sessions. We want to be able to use those again um, and improve upon the only tool we had uh, currently, which was a process account. So the functional goals for our project that we undertook were to gather the, the, all of the keystroke data, with what the user typed and what came back from the system, um, record uh, the metadata of who logged in and when and where and what sort of credentials they use. We already have a lot of that because it's in Syslog centrally syslogged, but having that alongside the actual session data uh, is really useful. Uh, And then there are a lot of other SSH events. So, for example, when you use SSH to tunnel X windows or HTTP or something like that, you're opening up a separate channel to do that, and we'd like to record that. See, um, In some cases, we'd like to see at least a little bit of the data that's going over there to make sure that it's not hostile. Um, But we also want to know what people are doing. At NERSC, uh, a lot of data gets moved around. So terabytes of data are being moved around, so it doesn't make sense to try and capture all that data. But we still wanted to see um, you know, what files are being moved and where they're, where they're going and where they're coming from, and how big they are. Um, so all that information about using SCP and SFTP. Uh, PSC stands for Pittsburgh Supercomputing. And uh, some of the folks out there came up with a set of patches for SSH, which improve the performance uh, in terms of moving large data sets over long-haul networks. Out-of-the-box, OpenSSH isn't really tuned for that because most people aren't doing that, but they came up with a really good set of of, um, patches for OpenSSH that really do improve performance, and our users had been asking for it, so we thought, uh, while we're in there, let's Let's throw this in, too, and make sure it's compatible. And ultimately, we want to be able to analyze all the data that we're collecting. So what we did was, the plan was to, um, instead of have Bro listening on the network, we wanted to have Bro listening to our SSH demons that are running on our systems. So the SSH daemon has already got all the data there, it's already moving it around. Let's uh, modify the daemon so that it will send us the data, or send the data to our running bro instance so that it can analyze it. Being a, a uh, user facility that, like we are, there were some constraints that we had, primarily around not um, getting in the way of our users. We Specifically, we wanted to make sure that the user experience was identical to what it was before. Um, we did not want to hide what we're doing. We don't hide what we're doing. We're actually very upfront about it. Whenever you log into any system, it blasts all over your screen that you can and do monitor all of your traffic. But we didn't want the user to have to run a different command or to learn different arguments uh, the SSH or to even have to worry about. Uh, they should be able to just do things the same way they did before. And obviously, we didn't want to impact the performance. But we didn't want the the memory footprint of SSH to suddenly double. Um, so we had to be careful about that. Um, and we didn't want to break SSH. We didn't want to lose any of the security that SSH gives us. Some would argue we did, but I beg to differ. I think it's just as secure, in fact, it's better. we know what's going on now. Um, so with that in mind, some of the design choices that we made, the first one was a no-brainer. We started with the OpenSSH code. We already had it on all of our systems. That's what our users are already using. Uh, so to avoid um, you know, changing what our users have to do, it made sense to go with that. The Pittsburgh Supercomputing Patches. All um, written for OpenSSH, so that was pretty easy, a pretty easy choice. And OpenSSH is actually really well um, maintained, and there are lots of people that are looking at it critically to to find vulnerabilities. So we have a certain amount of faith and and trust in that code. Uh, We wanted to minimize the changes that we made to that. Not just because we're lazy, but to avoid adding bugs or or adding new security vulnerabilities to it, and of course, you know, keeping that user experience the same. Uh, we didn't want to have to reinvent anything in the code that was already available somewhere else. And there are some examples of what that led us to do uh, that I'll get to. We uh, decoupled the analysis part of what we were doing from the data collection. Obviously, we do not want to run Bro on all of our login nodes for our computers. That's going to slow things down, um, and it's going to make it really difficult for us as security people to wander around all these machines and collect the data. Um, so, what we have is we have our intrusion detection system running on, on one system, and then all the uh, the uh, nodes that we're monitoring, all they're doing is just collecting the data. And over the network to our intrusion detection system. That also helps us minimize the possibility that if something goes wrong with the analysis side, that it's going to impact our users, because we're able to completely decouple that. The whole analysis side, the whole network can go away um, as far as the connection to um, the analysis side system, and the user's not going to notice anything. And uh, lo and behold, we also chose to uh, carefully test what we did. Seemed like a good idea at the time. So we did that. Uh, we also did, we did careful reviews of the design, the code, we did code walkthroughs. Um, we actually have sort of a version two that we're working on now, and we've been testing it for probably two or three months. And, uh, that'll go in production shortly. So I wanted to mention a couple of things that, it, that we did not do, um, and basically the data that comes out of our instrumented version of SSH is kind of just a raw text stream. And if you compare it to something like a process accounting file, it's it can be a lot harder for a human to parse it because it's it's just text, whereas Process accounting file, you've got a list of commands and the resources that were used. Um, the same with a syslog file, you've got, you know, syslog messages and, and all the arguments. It's nice and neat and tidy. Um, in this case, all we were really trying to do is get the data into our intrusion detection system. So we didn't care whether or not it was pretty for us to read. Um, we wanted to make sure that our bro could use it. And um, so it's, it's, not necessarily very pretty. For example, if you log into your favorite uh, Linux box and you type ls and, and the, the file listing comes out with the files nicely color coded by type, well, if you look at that coming out of here, it's full of all those ANSI escape squ- sequences that change the colors. Um, it's there, but <laughs> the, the real data is there, but it's intermingled with all this other uh, junk. Uh, we did not attempt to do any. Uh, application reassembly or playback. It's not to say that it couldn't be done, but again, we just didn't really, it wasn't our priority. We didn't care whether or not you could sit down and say, okay, show me exactly what happened and how it happened. Uh, what that means is that when a user goes into a text editor like the um, and they start moving the mouse around on the screen, that, that doesn't look like much. It just Again, it's a bunch of antsy However, there's still actually really useful information when a user goes into an editor. And um, this is an example of that. Yeah. So, um, to talk about the how we did it and, and whatnot, um, I'm just going to start. I have like one slide to review SSH and how it works, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And then I can talk about the differences that. Um, that we made in terms of clients, uh, the server startup, what happens when the client connects, and um, how we do the actual data collection, um, and how we use buffers and whatnot that are already nicely coded into OpenSSH. Uh, We don't collect everything. So um, I'll talk about how we actually limit what we collect and uh, how we deal with passwords. A perhaps surprisingly ugly thing to discuss, but uh, we had to deal with it. Um, and again, decoupling the write from, from our SSHD to the, uh, the uh, analysis side of it had to make absolutely sure that that was non blocking, uh, not just the write, but the open of, of the uh, uh, file descriptor. And then I already mentioned the uh, Pittsburgh uh, Supercomputer Models. So anybody who's uh, dealt with SSH before should recognize this. When you first start it up, you're starting up that that red Master SSH daemon. That's the daemon that listens on, typically on port 22, but you can have it listen on any port you want. Uh, You can have multiple Master daemons running on the same system listening on different ports. To take that into um, When a client connects to port 22, the uh, master daemon essentially just completes the, SS- the TCP handshake and then forks off a copy of itself to handle the authentication, authorization, and the, the data. Uh, typically, a user is going to log in. It's going to create a shell with a pseudo-TTY device associated, and it's going to handle all of the traffic. Can have So the result is you can have lots of these SSH demons running at the same time. Um, These demons also go through a very complicated and fancy dance to disassociate themselves from the master demon, because you don't want these things to have any of the permissions that that demon has. Um, So one of the first things that it does is make itself so that it has absolutely no permission to do anything um, until... It authenticates the client, and then it only has permission to do what that user uh, would have to do. Um, so that's kind of the way it works before we messed around with it, um, and we didn't really change much. Although this picture looks drastically different, um, I didn't put the master daemon in there, but it's still there. Uh, but you've got so you got a bunch of clients. They're talking to demons, and the demons are talking to shells. They don't have to be shells, by the way. They can be any interactive command you want. Um, but typically, you'll, you'll see a bunch of demons talking to a bunch of shells. And then what we did was that that write that I talked about, um, where it gets the data over here, it's talking to a single S tunnel process that's running on the server, And uh, we chose to do that again, because we didn't want to reinvent S-Tunnel, we didn't want to put that inside of SSH. Because S-Tunnel works really well, and it's already on all of our systems, and we didn't have to do anything to it except create a configuration script, and there it was. Um, So S-Tunnel is listening on a local TCP port. It's a a low-numbered port, so that a regular user can't put up their own S-Tunnel. Then it's talking, oh, anybody who doesn't (laughs) who doesn't know what S tunnel is, it's kind of a generic implementation of SSL. So it allows you to take a protocol that is not encrypted and send it over the network um, within an SSL tunnel, hence the name. So S Tunnel grabs that unencrypted data coming from those demons on the local machine, sends it, it, encrypts it with SSL, sends it over here to our analysis side that data gets dumped into an aggregate log file. So remember that this analysis server can be accepting data from more than one server um, and more than one session under the server. Uh, so all that is aggregated into a single file, and then uh, we have, um, I'll describe it later, but we have um, software that allows us to take that data and get it into our running row inside. So on startup, um, what we added was essentially that master daemon has to create uh, an uh, an identifier, a unique identifier for that daemon. And it does, and it's made up of the process ID of the daemon, the host name, which may or may not be qualified. It's whatever comes back from the host name and the port number that it's listening to. So if you have multiple demons running on the same machine, they'll all have different uh, server IDs, and of course on different machines they have different server IDs. Second thing that it does is it sends the first event to our, um, uh, through the s-tunnel to our analysis side. It's an SSHD start um, event. All the data that goes through, we sort of refer to as it indicates the, I've kind of sanitized this a little bit, but actually in this case, that was the IP address. Um, but it's the IP address uh, that it's running on, the port that it's listening on, and then that uh, process ID. So then when a, co- when a client connects, um, we needed a way to be able to differentiate the sessions um, because there are multiple sessions. So, um, they can be forked off the same master daemon. And after um, uh, a lot of headaches and dealing with operating systems that were just not behaving, um, IBM, I hope you're listening, uh, it turned out that the best way to do that was to assign a random number to the, uh, the daemon, uh, to the client, the, or the session Typically, it's a 32-bit number, but on some of our machines, it's a 64-bit number. Uh, In the unlikely event that two machines or two servers were to come up with the same uh, random session ID at about the same time, that's not a problem because it's combined with the uh, server ID, which will be different. The only time that it's kind of an inconvenience is if the same um, master daemon generates the same um, uh, session ID in a short period of time so that you have these two sessions running at the same time. And it doesn't kill anything. It just means that on the uh, analysis side, you have two sessions that kind of look like one. So far in the six months or so that we've been running this, that's never happened. Um, but it is a possibility. We're still looking for ways to... So, as far as capturing the data, that turned out to be, well, easier than I thought it was going to be. OpenSSH uses buffers a lot. Um, all the data that goes through um, an OpenSSH session is buffered. And they define these buffers, um, the code is all there for it. It's actually almost trivial to just say, okay, when you open up a new channel within a session, uh, add another buffer. And then you can define the characteristics of that buffer, and you can manage it however you want. So that's what we did. Um, each session, so this is kind of what it looks like if you've got a client that's talking to a shell, um, and this middle part is the uh, that session daemon, and so in this case, As an example, anybody who's done any shell programming will recognize you've got standard out, standard in, and standard error, and those are typically implemented as three separate um, channels, although oftentimes they're combined in other parts of the system. But in this case, we just said, as you're creating those channels, create these buffers for us. And then
1: uh, later
0: on in the code, we specify the maximum length of the buffer, and we also specify that we want to know when a carriage return goes through the buffer that's kind of what we use to delimit uh, the So when we see a a carriage return or when the buffer gets full, then we uh, decide what to do. Typically, it's going to go out um, as as an event to that local DCP port and over to our analysis side. So one of the things that this should probably be a lesson learned um, that we didn't realize until we started playing around with this is that the concept of interactive is uh, fuzzy. Um, if, if you do, if you say SSH user at host, leave off anything else, by default what it's going to do is what I described earlier, it's going to, um, assuming you successfully uh, authenticate yourself and, and you're authorized to do this. It'll open up a shell, it'll associate a a pseudo TTY device with um, that shell, and those three um, channels will will get set up for you. Um, And When we look at those channels within SSH, you can easily ask, is this channel associated with a a, a TTY device? So we know when that happens, we know that that's pretty much um, certainly an interactive login session. if you type SSH user at host and then give any command after that, then it does not do any of that. Um, All it does is execute that command. You just have the one channel that's, that's sort of connected to that command. And typically that's used for things like moving data. So if you do an SCP, under the hood that's what it's doing. It's essentially saying execute the SCP command. And needed to be able to get out of the way of that. So we didn't want to be trying to capture all that data, because when we turn on those buffers, it slows down data throughput by like three times. So initially, we were just like, well, okay, if it's, if it's, a, um, if it's clearly interactive and it has a DVI device, then we'll, we'll do this. Otherwise, we'll just record the command that was issued and forget about it. And that turned out to be a bad idea, because what hackers do is this. They say, okay, SSH user at host. Then they give it a command, and the command is a shell. And then they tell the shell, by the way, the dash I, says, I know that this looks like a um, non-interactive instance of running this shell, but I want you to pretend that it is, and I want you to send me command prompts, and I want you to wait for further input. So that basically gives them an interactive shell. The reason that they do that is... Remember back that unset his file? They don't have to do that <laughs> because the shell, when you uh, implement it this way, when you start it up this way, it doesn't record any history, um, history file, and and there is, there are certain other logging that uh, that can take place that does not take place when the shell thinks that it's being executed non-interactively. So we discovered that hackers did this. And unfortunately, it's not just hackers. There are a bunch of tools that our system administrators at NERSC use that take advantage of this same concept to to run shells on a 1,000 nodes all at once, and and they all start up this way. So we also couldn't just say whenever we see SH-I, then set off the alarm, because we see it a lot. But we had to treat them differently what we do, for the ones that we know are interactive, um, I mentioned that we limit that buffer size. Currently, I think we're using 1024, but that's configurable. Um, And the idea of that is just that if you have a hacker that's typing in possible commands, they're typically going to be within the first 1024 bytes of the command line. So um, if you see a whole lot of data like that, then it's more likely that they've done they're, they're catting something or, or something like that. So, when when we get to 1024 um, in any of those buffers, then we uh, we stop buffering, but we continue counting how much data is going through. Then the other thing we do is, as far as the data that's coming back from the server. Again, typically, within the first few lines of of data that comes back, that's what's the most interesting. Um, If somebody sits down, logs in, and says, make world, and then walks away, well, you know, megabytes and megabytes of data is going to go by that we really don't care about. Um, So we didn't want to collect all that. So we have, basically, a line limit that if you don't see any input from the user, then after um, X number of lines, I think now we have it up to about twenty. Um, after twenty lines of data coming from the server, um, we go back to that mode where we're not buffering; we're just recording how much data is is coming through. And then, as soon as the user does something, types something, hits return, whatever, then we reset that. And we start recording again, and that that seems to work out pretty well most of the time. We get the entire session with with the. So for the other channels, um, again, we wanted to make sure that we could get out of the way quickly, um, but we also needed to figure out if this was if one of these was an interactive session. So what we do is we we look at the first ten twenty-four bytes. We always capture the first ten twenty-four bytes, and and then we look at the ratio of printable characters to non-printable characters. If most of the characters that we see are printable, then, um, then the assumption is that that's not guaranteed to be an interactive session, but it's likely. So we'll go ahead and capture the first half minute. Um, otherwise, if it does not look like it's uh, readable text, then we're not that interested in it, so we'll just get out of the way. So if you're transferring a, you know a gigabyte, this isn't really going to be a problem. Even if we decide that it looks like text, all we're going to be looking at is the first half megabyte. All the rest of it's going to go through at full speed. Um, And so again, this has worked out pretty well. Um, And and, uh, uh, nobody has been complaining that all of a sudden their data takes forever to transfer. Artificially, we can come up with ways (laughs) to... (laughs) tickle this and make it really slow, um, but our, none of our users to be doing that for you. Passwords. So, um, this pa- passwords are a political mess, um, and, the, and they were a mess for us at NERSC as well. There isn't really a good way to guarantee that we will not capture a password. So what we did was, um, in addition to making sure our users understand that that we're doing this and that we may capture their passwords um, if they care, we have this kind of trivial uh, thing, test, uh, heuristic, that you, you can implement if you want to, if you're running this code, um, it's a compile time option, not a runtime option. Wh- what it does is it looks for the data that's coming back from this server, and if it sees the word password or passphrase um, in a line, and the next line comes from the user, it's going to assume that that probably contains a credential. And it will either tag it and send it along. So that we can then look through the logs later on and say, oh, this is probably a password. Or it can just throw it away. I'm send that. uh, that's actually what we do at NERSC, uh, because we're, we are trying not to collect passwords. And this, obviously, it's, it's not 100%, it's maybe 90, maybe 80, I don't know. Um, we still see passwords that, uh, that people type. Uh, we saw passwords before you look in your syslog file, a lot of times users will type in their password when it's asking for the username. There you go. <laughs> um, so that's you know, it's not 100%. Um, but it works pretty well. And the, the other thing about this that I have to mention, um, people frequently jump to the conclusion that, oh, hey, well, I'll just change my prompt to the word password. Um, and you can do that. Uh, but it won't really help because we're still collecting the echo. If it's really a password, it doesn't echo. So in addition to that, you'll have to turn off your echo. And if we see you doing that, then we'll find another way to to deal with passwords. Um, And again, the, uh, the most important thing about this is we have to let our users know Especially at nurse, because we have a lot of users who log in to, to a nurse machine, and then they go off and they log into another machine at Argon or somewhere else. And if we're collecting that password, we're collecting credentials for another site, and we would like to avoid doing that. And, uh, some of our users would appreciate it if we avoided doing that. Um, on the other hand, personally, I don't really care because I know where the data is. That the data is fairly well contained. Uh, right, so I mentioned about decoupling the, the right, um, and I mentioned that failure of the downstream network has no impact on the users. Uh, w- one of the conscious decisions we made was that we would rather lose this security data than have a user um, interrupt it. And uh, so far, we haven't lost any. But, um, but it does work. We've tested fairly um, extensively. You can kill off that uh, s-tunnel process altogether, and actually it will recover from that very nicely. Um, essentially, what it does is whenever it's going to do a write, um, it has a file descriptor in a variable, and it attempts to do the write. And if the write fails uh, because the file descriptor is not open, And it will open it up or attempt to open it up. Again, non-blocking. And if that succeeds, then it will try the write one more time. And if the write fails again, then uh, we just throw the throw the data away and move on. Um, And we set the the um, the timeouts and and whatnot very, very low so there's no buffering going. Uh, I mentioned the Pittsburgh stuff, which works very well. Um, I think for the most part our users are happy with that. Uh, the URL, but you can just Google for um, Pittsburgh supercomputing and SSH. And you'll find it. Um, it. It works very nicely, and it really has no bearing on what we did because it's a completely different part of the code that they patched. Um, so the compatibility turned out to be very easy. So again, about S-Tunnel, just a couple of notes. Um, as I said, we're using a completely generic configuration on S-Tunnel. Um, on the analysis side, you can send the data to um, here. You could send the data to the logger command, which will generate a syslog entry. We chose not to do that because um, it's like a know, about five lines of. Shell code to just dump it in a log file, and uh, and then we don't have to deal with the, all the formatting and whatnot. This uh, uh, but you could do it that way. Um, our initial implementation does tolerate self-signed, um, snake certificates in the, S, um, in the SSL connection, um, but only the uh, only the analysis side is authenticated. So. If you're running a a server and you want to send your data to our analysis machine, then uh, that is authenticated so you know that you're sending it to the right place and not to uh, someone, some bad guy. Um, However, if you are sending data to us, (laughs) don't really care. So (laughs) we'll just collect it. Um, Although you can only get to our analysis machines if you're on our network. We probably will do crop authentication in the not-too-distant future so that it's in both directions. So uh, anybody who's not using Bro, now would be a good time to take a nap because um, this is specific to Bro. Um, And the way that we get the data out of that file and into Bro, which um, which is kind of cool, kind of a cool thing about Bro. Bro has uh, a library called Broccoli, which allows multiple Bro instances to talk to each other, and it also allows you to send things to a running Bro instance. Um, And in this case, that's what we're doing. Um, We're using uh, something that is sometimes referred to as a a generic Bro client or something uh, to create events for Bro and send them to a running process. The only things that we changed to that generic Bro client um, was we, we needed to fix it so that it could handle the longer strings that we were sending it and could um, deal with some of the weird characters that show up in those strings. Uh, so, we, so we fixed that. But otherwise, it's essentially the same thing that we use to get um, syslog data into Bro, which we also do. Um, the basic idea is you take, um, so at the top, that's sort of uh, an event from SSH, from the SSH And it's just got you know, a name and an and, uh, a account and an address and a, and a string. So it converts those things into uh, types that Bro understands, like an int. Um, the address goes into an unsigned 32-bit int. String goes into a bro string, and then from that you can create the event and, as I say, send it to a running bro process. Um, And like I said, we've been using this for years now to get syslog stuff into bro, and um, so that's an example of a syslog message that gets um, parsed into this sort of standard um, structured text, and then that, that same process. Uh, happens to get it into BRO, which is, which is really nice. So then, on what, what we do on BRO, um, for anybody who's not uh, familiar with BRO, one of the things that BRO does is, it ha- it's sort of two, two layers. There's one part that's listening on the network that's completely agnostic to what it sees. It does not care. All it's doing is, um, generating events of things that it sees happen. Um, Initially just on the network, but now with Broccoli, um, we can generate all kinds of events. And uh, and then on top of that is a policy engine. And you can write policy code in a uh, Bro language to determine uh, from a broader perspective when an event is good or bad and decide what to do about it. So what we were primarily working was getting the data into Bro um, on the on that agnostic side of it. Um, so most of our effort was was spent doing that. There's already a um, you know we were running Bro back in the clear tech days. So there's a there's a, a policy file called login.bro that does all this kind of neat um, Analysis of a login session. Uh, if you can see it. So what we wanted to do was essentially get our SSH data to look just like that, and uh, or to make it easily, uh, uh, make it easy to use that login. and uh, so that's that's what we focused on, and we added a little bit to login. but not much. So this is an example of of the log output. From Bro, and uh, one of the first things that you'll notice is that that uh, crosshatch 511 at the beginning. So that's what Bro does um, for us by s- by looking at that um, uh, server ID and the session ID, it combines that all into one thing and allows us to very quickly and easily associate all of the events for a single session into one uh, into one thing. So in this example, uh, you you have the first event is a connection start event. Um, And then there's an authorization event where uh, Scott C logged in using a public key. A new new SSH2 session was created um, that used a PTY and ran a shell. So we know that this is interactive. Then these um, ones in black and red here, this is kind of the meat of what actually happened. These data server events and data client events, data server event obviously is data coming from the server, data client is coming from the client or the user. So in this case, the first thing that they see is the last login message, the message of the day. They type ls, ls gets echoed. Um, in this case, we don't have all that nonsense with the <laughs> uh, colorful stuff, so it just prints out the... Uh, um, the directory listing, and they logged out. And then we have a connection end uh, that ends the whole thing. So that's actually um, what the bro logs look like from a login session using this code. Um, so a couple of things that, that we take advantage of, first of all, it makes a whole lot makes things a whole lot easier to look at what the server echoes instead of what the user types. We want to have what the user types, but I don't want to have to parse that the control H's and I may or may not know what the user has has translated control H to mean. So um, you know we have that, it's there, we can see how bad our users can type uh, or our hackers. And, but when we look at that, that's what tells us how the, uh, the, the system interpreted it. That's what the system had um, And then again, I mentioned login.bro, which we modified a little bit. We added some more contemporary, hostile uh, stuff to it. But we kept all the old stuff in there because it still works. <laughs> um, and then... One of the things that Bro lets us do is, again, take a sort of a broader perspective. Um, it's easy enough for kind of any intrusion detection system to just look for commands or patterns. Um, but what we're also looking at is you know, there are some commands where just the command is not necessarily hostile. So something like uname. Um, if the user types uname a, um, well, that's not necessarily hostile. But if that's the only thing they did and then they logged out, i like to know about that because that's something that a hacker typically does uh, when they first get a machine. So they'll just log in. They might type, you know, you name and maybe an LS or, or who, and then they log out right away. So being able to look at series of events in context and um, kind of wait uh, the different events differently based on other events that have been happening is something that is pretty easy to do in bro and we've, we've been working on that as well. Okay, so here's my um, here's my good example um, of something that actually happened uh, in early March at NERSC. It was account, an, an account compromise. They didn't get root, but they tried. Um, and I wanted to start off by, I couldn't put the entire accounting logs for all of the logins that were associated with this event, uh, because it would it would be ridiculous. But this is probably the most interesting accounting records that we saw. And the point is, it's not interesting. It's, you know, some people might say, well, what about Pico? To tell you the truth, a lot of our users use Pico. It used to be kind of the darling of the hacker community, but uh, we have Pico on all of our systems, and many of our users use it. So um, that doesn't really help. Um, the fact is, in poring over all of these logs, there was nothing that I could find that made me concerned about any of the logins that were associated with this event. However, Bro thought differently. Um, because one of the first things that they did, <laughs> they typed unset is fun. Idiot. Um, uh, this was not one of those sh-i logins, so um, you know that came through to Bro right away, and Bro immediately said, "Woo, this is bad," and we all got paged. Um, I've sanitized this a little bit, so those addresses are obviously not the real ones. <laughs> um, and then we got uh, we got lots of other alerts. I included these three because what happened was, after they logged in, they downloaded a tool to uh, hopefully get root with, and they before they could use it, they had to bring it into an editor and edit it. And so these things are all stuff that showed up on the screen when they opened it up in the editor. And Bro recognized a lot of that as potentially hostile. Uh, from... Hacks that we've seen before, code that we've seen before. So, all of this stuff, you know, Bro got very excited about. And, <laughs> um, and we got very excited about it too, so we started looking into it. Um, and immediately, you know, we figured out that this was in fact not the real user of that account, that it was another user, uh, or a hacker. Um, one of the things that they did was. They downloaded that, uh, that forker.c hack, um, and the nice thing is that because we had the, um, the, the entire session, we had that RCP command up there where they downloaded it. So again, that not the address that they went to, but we had it so we could download it. And in fact, we actually captured most of it anyway, so we didn't have to go there and get it. So we knew what it was. And obviously, it didn't work. It wouldn't have worked even if they could have gotten it to run. Um, so they did a, they did some other things. Um, in this case, they're, uh, um, they realized that they were on a cluster. I don't know if they realized how big that cluster was. Um, there were several thousand tens of thousands of nodes that they could have logged into. But what they wanted to do was um, they wanted to automate the process of uh, getting to those machines. Um, And it's kind of interesting, because what this user did was they spent a great deal of time coming up with this. What that let him do was, um, after he had generated a new public-private key pair, understanding that the home directory is the same on all of the systems. Uh, what he wanted to be able to do was log into any and all of the other nodes uh, unattended so that it wouldn't ask him for, you know, this is you've never logged into this host before, do you want me to record the host name in your known host file? You have to say yes. He wanted to get around that. So that's what he's doing here. Uh, he's generating the key and figuring out how to do that, and then he did it, and it worked. Um, the thing that's even more interesting about this is that there was more than one hack. They were sharing a login session. So they were using a tool called um, GNU Screen. What that allows you to do is two people can uh, sort of connect up outside of NERSC and then they share a login to one of our machines. And they can talk to each other and we see this. <laughs> um, so right after. The, uh, the guy who was kind of doing most of the driving had done this. Um, we saw an interesting conversation between the two of them. So, the guy who was watching asked what, what he was doing and, um, and asked if he was trying to get rid of the need to press yes. And he said, Yeah, that's what he's doing. And he, <laughs> so he referred to him as a noob and said that there were better ways to do this. And I think the funniest part of the whole thing is when he said that, that hack, that that's a hack and that's completely impromptu. I, I'm i glad that our hackers are proper. Uh, then he pointed out that it was in frac.org issue 64. Um, so aside from being quite entertaining in the middle of the night, um, the... Uh, The main point of this whole example is that none of this stuff showed up in any logs on any of our systems except what we pulled out of our instrumented SSHD. So I'm fairly confident that this account would still be hacked if we were not looking at those logging sessions. Um, There was just nothing else to go on, yet with the, with the, the instrumented SSH, we got woken up uh, quite easily and um, managed to uh, disable the account very quickly uh, before they had a chance to, to get root or do anything uh, particularly unpleasant. So it worked. That's that's my uh, presentation. Are there any questions? They stole the user's credentials. That's kind of, that's the main way that people get into our system these days. So, like I said, we've got upwards of 3,000 users, and you can't control the systems that they're coming from. They get hacked periodically. We sort of go under the assumption that at any Point in time, there's at least one or two accounts on our systems that are not fine. And you can use this to find anything else? Yeah, you can, uh, if you. Like I said, if you Google Pittsburgh Supercomputing and SSH, then you can go to their site and download those patches. It's both on the uh, the uh, server and the client side, so it's both the uh, SSHD and, and regular SSH that get patched. So far, yes, um, we. The bulk of the concern and consternation came from us. I mean, we um, and we have a number of people on staff who are, you know, very protective of our users, and so they were bringing up a whole lot more issues than anybody else was. And in fact, all the password stuff that we dealt with was, you know, us kind of going back and forth and hemming and hawing and deciding what to do. And, And once we decided and we presented it to our users, and they were like, "Good, so it's more secure." That's what we started with was a pid. <laughs> um, yeah, it does seem obvious, <laughs> but unfortunately, the um, uh, and on most operating systems that we use that was that worked fine, but on on our AIX system, the, the pids were all coming out the same, so it wasn't really giving us a pid, and it was changing its mind about the, what the pid was from time to time, and uh, so it was giving us the same pid for two different sessions. Simultaneous. It was just wrong. <laughs> it was just fundamentally broken. Um, so you know, that's what we came up with to get around it, and it's worked okay. Um, it, you know, I'm not proud of it, but. <laughs> well that might be helpful. Alright, I'll have to look into that. All
1: right, cool. Thanks.
0: <laughs> um, yes and sort of. Um, The uh, what we've been doing because we're running this on all of our production systems, we've sort of made a commitment to um, uh, to ourselves to whenever SSH is updated, depending on the update. If it's a security update, then we'll get on it as fast as we can. Um, And uh, if it's not a security update, if it's something else, then it might take us a little bit longer. Um, But the other thing to, to note is that it's very easy to back out. So, if a security update comes and we don't manage to, come to get on it fast enough, it's pretty easy to just go back to the regular access um, And as far as availability, uh, our uh, technology uh, sharing people are—I don't know what they're—I don't know what they're, they're doing—but they're having a hard time with it. Um, I have every confidence that that will be resolved. Um, what I've been told so far is that if, you, uh, if you're from a dot .gov, then there's no problem, we can give it to you. Um, if you're from a dot .edu, um, we will be able to give it to you. What I would suggest is send me an email, telling you that you want it. And, uh, uh, the more of those emails I get, the easier it'll be for me to go to somebody and say, look, <laughs> we need to give this out, uh, there's nothing that we're trying to hide. Well, it, yeah, it, no, that's not the concern. Uh, we thought about that a lot, and the fact is that if I were going to trojan an SSH, I yeah, I probably wouldn't do it this way um, because the, the better ones are the ones that actually capture you know passwords only passwords and you know store them or forward them or do whatever. So. And we've had that, unfortunately, happen. Um, So uh, I'm not so concerned about this particular version being used that way. I don't think that it's the best tool for that. Um, The other thing to note is that in a lot of ways, we're protected against that. Somebody comes in and replaces our SSH. One of the events that I didn't mention um, is a heartbeat event. So every minute or so, that master demon sends a heartbeat event to our um, analysis side. And if those heartbeats go away, then we get paged. So, unless you replaced it with a version like this, <laughs> um, you would probably, uh, it would go away quickly. No, it's not. In, in our it could, but in our case, no, it's going just to an aggregate log file. The, well, the the passwords on the on, on the uh, within sshd we have that that thing turned on that gets rid of the passwords gets rid of most of them. Um, on the other end, currently we're not doing anything. Um, we're not even looking. Thanks.